Welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. We are a new magazine, website, YouTube channel and podcast dedicated to history and historical fiction. On this podcast, you'll find interviews with best-selling and acclaimed historians and novelists talking about great events and people of history. Head over to our website where you'll find articles, interviews, book reviews and short stories. And they're all absolutely free. We also have annual subscriptions to our magazine at the shockingly low price of 9 99 in both pounds and dollars, which of course you can gift to friends and family. Anyway, on with the podcast. Please do subscribe if you enjoy it and give us a great rating if you can. Today I'm talking with Tessa Dunlop. Tessa is the author of Bletchley Girls and Century Girls, best-selling works of oral history where she speaks with women who have lived through incredible times. Her latest, Army Girls, is her account of 17 living veterans of the Second World War, and it's out on the 4th of November. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, so welcome, Tessa Dunlop. Welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. Thank you for having me, Oliver. So, Tessa, um, you're here today to talk about your new book, Army Girls, uh, which is the secrets and stories of military service from the final few women who fought in the Second World War. Um, so, Tessa, first question I have really is these ladies, and this is an oral history, so you've spoken with 17 women. Yes. Um, and they are, they're pretty amazing, um, not only for what they went through in the war, but also more recently in the pandemic and and they're still going strong um 14 of them i believe yeah just um just a word on um being extraordinary and the sort of i remember the very first oral history book i wrote because this is the third this is the the end of the trilogy the first one was the bletchley girls about eight years ago and i was criticized in the guardian they said that i used too many superlatives when referring to women these elderly women because even then you know sort of eight years ago the women were sort of in their late 80s early 90s and um i took that on the chin i thought yeah they maybe had a point but i also believed strongly and still do that all the women deserved those superlatives and i actually did a bit of research into it because all three of my oral histories have focused on the extreme elderly so uh, women over 100 for my second book, The Century Girls, and now with the Army Girls. Well, conscription for women was passed 80 years ago. So you had to be old enough to serve. So that's how old they are. The youngest is 96 and the oldest is 102. So we're talking properly, properly on the precipice of life. Now, and I wanted to look into why it was that I felt all these women were extraordinary. Um, and I talked to the leading um, geriatrician uh, in Britain, a professor, Adam Gordon, he's vice, um, he's um, a president-elect of the British Geriatric Society. And he said to me, actually, you're you're right, he said, there is something extraordinary about most of the extreme elderly. It's not just genetic good fortune. In fact, proportionally very little of what informs our very good form in very late life, so we're talking over 95, is very little of that is genetic. Yes, you have to avoid the big killers, the cancers, the heart failures, etc. So there needs to be an element of luck. But actually, in order to stay in good fettle, both mentally and physically, you need to have had a life of great practice. So good routines, uh, you need to retain your ambitions, you need to have multi-generational friendships because your own generation will die. 
And uh, that sort of cocktail uh, needs to be retained into extreme old age. And all the women I work with, the mere fact they were up for being in a book, that takes effort and energy. That suggests ambition. That suggests they're still reaching out outside themselves and engaging with the modern world. And yeah, so that for me, that's that's being exceptional. Some days I find it hard to get out of bed. Imagine being 99 in a pandemic with this annoying woman going, hi, Joan. <laughs> I suppose you could just tell me about 1941, could you? you know, so they are. So I stand by using superlatives, but I've tried to use fewer of them in the army girls. All right. Just saying from the get go, they are exceptional. But the other thing is that I think we need to guard against and the way sometimes I promote the book, I think, exacerbates our trend, a tendency to lionize the generation that existed during the Second World War, that fought and served in the Second World War. Uh, as Anne, no longer with us, late Anne, late great Anne, said, she said, I believe my generation was very run of the mill. Uh, I think that the thing is, those that remain, these extraordinary physical and mental outliers are exceptional. So we're now looking at the war through them. And that makes us think, oh, they were all exceptional. No, I think what tends to be the case is the ones that remain in particular are exceptional. And we shouldn't let that distort the way in which we tell the story of the Second World War. So your your trilogy are all oral histories. Um, yeah. why, why do you find it, why do you think it's so important to conduct your research in this way? Well, it was absolutely vital in lockdown because all the libraries and, and, and archives are closed, weren't there? Because <laughs> the only thing I could do was talk to people. And then I tell you, if you're deaf and 99 and don't have tech, it's quite hard going. And you're not allowed in their house. <clears throat> Occasionally rules were broken. No one died of COVID. Um, so, but I like to think that it was a mental boost for all of us, me included, uh, doing this project uh, during a pandemic. Um, why do I do? I, I think I began as a, you know, a presenter journalist on the radio. So that was one set of skill, one skill set I had, being able to dig out conversation. I grew up bizarrely in a small Highland village in the north of Scotland, and my mum, we didn't have telly. She was, was brutal. I don't know why we didn't have telly. Anyway, my mum used to make me go and sort of take calendars, homemade calendars, to all the elderly. She had this thing about, you know, being. So I spent my childhood with sort of. Robertson and Mrs Shorthouse and Mrs Waddle chatting to them and so it was just a kind of a muscle that was exercised from extreme youth and, um, and one that was very easy for me to then um, use professionally later on and, and I also had this twin track this interest in history I've got to say Ollie this is going to be my last oral history for a while because I believe um, strongly in a duty of care and also you get very close to people if you're talking to them about their I mean as it says in the title secrets as well as their stories and um, I can't, uh, people are living a long time and I can't maintain my duty of care to all those women, all three books to the end of their life um, and, and take on more in another book. So I'm, I'm going to write about dead people next. Just, okay. Just letting you know. Well, let, well, let's get down to the subject at hand. So, so the ATS, this is a, a book about veterans of the ATS. Now, yeah, predominantly, yeah. Right. Well, I, I think our listeners are probably familiar with Wrens, or may, maybe have at least have heard of the Wrens. But 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 the ATS is probably less familiar to most people. Could you just run through exactly what they were? Yeah, it's kind of ironic this because the ATS was the first female military service that was formed just before the Second World War, and actually, it supplied initially was to supply female support for all of the male military services. Then you get the WAF, which was the um, women's um, Auxiliary um, Air Force and the Wrens, uh, the Women's Royal 
Oh my goodness, right, Naval Service, that's it. Um, so the ATS was not only the first one, it was also the biggest one, much, much bigger than the Rens. So Met Rens, I think, amounted to sort of 70,000 women maximum. Um, nearly 300,000 girls were in the ATS and the WAF somewhere in the middle, I think about 180,000. It's much the biggest. And it was also the one that was behind this move to introduce conscription. The reason being, and not exclusively, but predominantly, it was recognised, and this was an exceptional U-turn that saw all the bald heads in the war office steam, um, that women would have to be employed on, in operational areas, in particular uh, on the fields of our gun sites. So they needed to be employed by AA command, anti-aircraft command. And therefore they were much the most significant female force. But um, Ollie, not only were they um, up against sexism, which all the female services were, I mean, the, the Wrens, you know, it was the wonderful motto, never at sea, you know, there was a limit to what women could do in the war, in all the services, but um, they were also up against a heft of snobbery. Uh, it was seen, it was the biggest force, it had a bad start for various reasons, we can go into if you'd like, but um, therefore it relied on conscription much more than the WAF and the Wrens never needed to conscript. They always had volunteers because they're rather fancy and there was a queue of women trying to get in. Um, but the, the ATS needed to conscript and that meant as Martha, Lady Martha Bruce in my boat, the poshest woman by far, quite scary actually. Last time I called her, she was really quite scary. Um, she was a Lieutenant Colonel later on actually in the TA as well as being um, a subaltern uh, in the ATS. She's 99 now, 100 uh, in a couple of weeks. Anyway, she said to me, well, by the middle of the war, we really were scraping the barrel and getting the wrong sort of girl. You know, so her point being, I mean, fairly legitimately, if you're trying to teach someone to operate radar or one of these instruments on a gun site, you need a modicum of intelligence. And she felt this wasn't always uh, the, the case with the girls that were coming forward. But more broadly, um, there was a much broader church. And in some ways, this was great. Anne, who was a, said herself, a well-bred vicar's daughter, you know, found it riveting, you know, being with these girls from a different world, really. But there was certainly, yeah, a, a broader a broader class range. And of course, the sort of um, chattering classes in Parliament, there's a lot of anxiety about the behaviour of these girls and newspapers like The Times. This is not the sort of service we would want our daughters to go into. And again, I, I just go back to that, both a combination of snobbery and sexism, which incidentally, quite a lot of my ATS women really still resent. Grace in particular. I don't know where that reputation come from. Or Daphne. I came from a very good home, although she does admit for the first time ever in the book that her dad um, was a gambler and her mom left her dad and sugared off to Norfolk, leaving him in Manchester. And this is coming out in the book and she's very, very worried about this, age 98, but she's agreed that I'm allowed to say it, even though she's preparing herself for the fallout. I said, I think people aren't gonna mind so much today, Daphne, about your dad being a gambler, especially it's as 90% of us are on Betfair at the moment, you know, on the pandemic, you know. That, that, that's amazing because that's probably not come out within her own family before. No, and quite, but most of her family are dead, forget, you know, they are dead. That's the thing about being 98. And once we said, but nobody in Feltwell, which was her, her village in Norfolk, knows about this. And I said, but Daphne, how many in Feltwell still would, you know, for, who, for how many in Feltwell will it resonate? So we discussed this at length and she decided just one person. So we decided therefore that we could talk about her um, difficult, you know, her mother, certainly mother's challenging start in life where she was pregnant with her third child and just had had enough of this man who was gambling the money away and went back to live with her own mother in, in Norfolk. So basically Daphne grew up without a dad, but the story was um, she, her mother was widowed for respectability's sake, because it, it was a different world in those times. We were very, very judgy. Lots of virtue signaling in, in other directions, Oliver. 
Absolutely. Are you Ollie? Are you Ollie or Oliver? Uh, I'm either. I'm either. either. I'm, I'm either. Um, so, so, and we'll, I, we, I want to get on to the ladies, um, particularly women. some of the women. women. It's Sorry. Just a, it's just a little tick. Some I want to get it. Want... Some people don't buy my book because they don't like the word girls. And, and I have an issue with ladies, but we've all got our little peccadillos, have we not? Yes, we do. We do. And I, I will make sure I, I say women. Now, I, I will get on to the women in a, in a minute. But you mentioned it was a difficult start to the ATS. So that's interesting. Could you talk a bit about that? Well, it was too little too late. Uh, there was no one really to, uh, well, there was Helen, Dame Helen Gwynne Vaughan. She's a very interesting character who I do touch upon in the book. So between the wars, it was decided that in peace times, because we definitely were never going to go to war again, we certainly did not need a female military service. Heaven help us. So the WAAC, the Women's Army in the First World War, they were never given a legal military footing, it ought to be said, were disbanded pretty pronto. The exception to that with a fanny who will come on to uh, this elite sort of um, classy volunteer force. They were the only ones who were extant between the wars. Now, that meant that come 1938, we're sort of stumbling blindly towards rearmament and no one, I mean, given, bearing in mind that we've hardly worked out, we've got to rearm and conscript our men. We're certainly not thinking about our women. And it's up to sort of old stalwarts like uh, Dame Helen Gwynmond, who got a, the first woman to ever win the CBE and was a big part of the WAAC in the First World War. By now, she's careering towards 60 and she's something of a sort of, she's a bit anachronistic, her ways are. Well, you've got to be fairly tough to push a female agenda in an organization as sexist and hierarchical as the army in, in, in the First World War. Can you imagine? So yeah, she's belt and braces, perhaps not what women in the late 30s were attracted to, but she's tasked with getting together this ATS and does as well as she can be expected to, but it's he heavily class-bound. And you know, the idea that sort of, you know, um, patriotism is more among the upper classes, that kind of, it was very patronizing. It kind of missed the beat, the contemporary beat of the times. And it was more like sort of a tweedy twin set and pearls hobby um, for ladies in the counties, to use your word, um, at that time. And it certainly didn't have broad appeal. So you're going into a war having not really given any thought to how to address uh, to, to, to address to, to encouraging women to serve, partly because we didn't think we'd need significant numbers of women to serve. Uh, quite quickly, the WAF and the Wrens break away and they have a reputation for being more innovative. Their uniform is a great deal more chicer. More chicer? Can you be more chic? More chic. Uh, with sort of pale shades, different shades of blue and certainly tucked in at the waist and a nice little tricorn on top. You know, so and compared to this sort of awful Serge and Lyle nasty, khaki dung colored outfit you know girls were just like so no so no to the ATS and Dame Helen Gwynne who was properly old by this stage in our fashion but bear in mind that for instance the woman's own was saying in late 1939 after the outbreak of war men must stand by their posts and women by theirs meaning the kitchen sink so there had to be a significant um, uh, change in opinion and that was going to take place over the next 18 months but yeah, if girls did sign up to, the, to a military service, to a uniform service, um, invariably they did not choose the ATS unless they had a sort of family connection with the army or some such like, for instance, Lady Martha Bruce did. Right. Um, so was there anything that surprised surprised you from these veterans? Because I know you've mentioned a few things, but but just how candid were they when speaking to you? Because you've mentioned secrets in, in the title. Uh, yeah, well, I got hold of their letters, didn't I? Right. Yes, they're teenage letters. Have you not read the book, Oliver? I have, but I'm. Uh, oh. 
Uh, that's why Five. I've asked you because I want you to bring it out. I could I could <laughs> read the book and then uh, out loud. I'm joking. I'm ribbing. Get any I'm, listeners. ribbing. I'm ribbing. I'm ribbing. Um, thank you for reading the book. Um, yes, indeed. I did. There is a duty of care when you're dealing with the very elderly. There's a reason why you can't cold call somebody of 99. So I'm always quite wary about you know what I can what I'm allowed access to, what I can write about. I make sure they check their extracts. That's difficult if they die midway through the project, which actually four did. I got the numbers wrong. I did a little film about promoting the book and I said 14 remain with us, in fact, 13. Um, but anyway, we won't dwell on sadness. Um, so the, the, they did give me some letters and it's actually tended to be the women who served overseas who wrote the best letters because of course they were further away and they felt, you know, sort of a longing or an obligation to write home more. We'll come to overseas service, I hope. Um, and so you, you got this perspective from an 18, 19 year old who had no idea that, you know, we were going to sort of lionize the experience they were going through and sort of see it as romantic or important or patriotic. They were just going, there's no loo roll, mum. In, that's so funny the lack of honestly I was in a pandemic where we were obsessed about loo roll and um and vaccinations and there's Joan who's stuck at some god-awful training camp in Northampton on the race course there writing home Talavera that's what it was called writing home going please can you send me loo roll and talking about how badly her arm had come up with her inoculation things like that were rather charming actually like I did really enjoy that and then as I was reading that literally she, she's got voice recognition email she sends me a voice recognition email going I've just had my COVID vaccination oh I love Joan in fact I owe her an email yeah on my list to-do list i'm quite busy with veterans we can't talk for long ollie carry on what's next right so then uh, th and there are some stories here that, that uh, um, uh, just to prove that i have read the book but uh, also mm. i did want to ask you this it's it's quite um it's very sad um incidents that are mentioned in the book in particular i think when 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 you write about uh cousin william dying uh, oh, that's Daphne. Daphne's again. That's cousin. Daphne. Yeah, that's lovely just, Daphne with the gambler dad. But it's rather heartbreaking. Yes, yes. And uh, Daphne's experience of the war, though, is extraordinary. Her friend Dorothy as well. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the great problems, isn't it, with lionising this generation and lionising war and also with Britain's experience of the war. I don't want to undermine that in any way. I'm selling a book about Britain in the Second World War, but it wasn't like the Eastern Front, which was like a meat grinder. It was just horror. It was just millions and millions of deaths. You know, we didn't experience death and loss on the same scale. But that, but, and therefore, I think when it struck home, especially early on in the war, it really landed. And for Daphne... Um, she, she, she knows her cousin William very well. He's an only child and she adores him. And she's quite funny about him. I think today he would have been homosexual. You know, she's sort of practicing the word age 98. She is wonderful, Daphne. And he um, dies. He's part of the British Expeditionary Force in France in 1940 and is killed um, in the German invasion. And this is a tragedy for his parents. I mean, their only son, forget the war. That's all that then matters to them. And Daphne lives that. She's sent to cheer them up. Can you imagine what a god awful task as a teenager to go and be with these parents and cheer them up? But actually it heightens her desire to serve. She also has a boyfriend. Um, because the aerodrome comes to Norfolk, you know, to Feltwell, and she she meets this man who's Reg. totally in love with her. Reg, yes, Reg. I mean, and I've seen a picture of him. He's a bit stolid, you know, he's just Mrs. Sexy. I think I feel very say, sorry for Reg. Do you? Reg gets dumped. Yeah, Reg does get dumped because Daphne's all like G'd up. She goes from working in a local shop to becoming an army girl. I mean, you know, she's all but her mum won't let her sign up, first of all, but her friend Dorothy is a little bit older and gets to go and her parents let her go and serve on a gun site. Let's just come to the gun site thing because it is interesting and important. 
one of the reasons why women didn't want to be in the ATS were the options, the jobs were, were, that were available were not seen as appealing. So in the WAF early on, you could be in a plotting uh, in the plotting room, you know, helping guide the planes in and out of the aerodromes, which is a pretty cool job, you know, given that most girls are flower arranging or arranging flowers, for, you know, either recreationally or for someone else, you know, prior to the war. But that's a, a quote. I, th I think probably there. most of us have seen that scene in, in the Battle of Britain film where you've got ladies in the women in the um, in the room moving around all the squadrons. Yeah. And, and that was done on the gun sites by the ATS, but later. So this is happening early for the WAFs in the war. And I think um, there is a sense if you want to see action and, and partake in the heroics that the men are joining in, then that, that's that, that or the rens of the service to join. And the ATS is sort of the army's dog's body, cooks and orderlies. Um, and so they have to do a pretty prompt rebranding by 1941, because the main problem for Britain, and the Blitz has woken us up late to this, is that our over a thousand gun sites need to be manned and the expression stuck even after the majority of the, the manning was partaken by women. Um, they need to be manned and the men are needed for the front line. So your most able and fit men are seconded off to the front line. And as the far seeing um, General Sir Frederick Tim Pyle pointed out and had anticipated before the war is, you know, the men, the men I get are duds. Because what man wants to work on a gun site with shrapnel falling down on his head, stuck at home in Britain, when you could be out there, piz was woo. We know that actually the reality of war was pretty horrific, you know, but, but the idea of it is exciting and heroic. And so, and certainly if you're going to serve, you don't want to be stuck um, in AA command. So he was getting the dregs of the available men. And he wrote this wonderful comment. I put it in the book, actually, you know, of, of, Five in 25 or something like one in 25. I can't remember the stat, but it's something quite high. You know, they're in the latter stages of venereal disease. They have thumbs that don't work. They have a glass eye. <laughs> These are guys are hopeless. And weirdly, what we're asking them to do is the most high tech stuff that's available in the Second World War. Because as um, Prime Minister Baldwin had anticipated in the mid 30s, shooting down a moving aircraft is nigh on impossible. So you get this incredible amount of technology, cutting edge technology, like a sort of pressure cooker of invention coming in during the war that needs to be mastered and carefully manned. And so that's what the girls are roped in to do. The men go, the, ta the more talented men go, the girls then are recruited onto these gun sites. And this is a big deal because it requires a U-turn in, in, in thinking, in military and political thinking, a big deal for the war office. You can imagine hidebound in sort of old school sexism because now girls are going to have to be on operational sites, um, which heightens the risk. And suddenly those, those early five trades that were available to women are vastly expanded. They can go into, not just by the way, into Royal Artillery, but also signals, um, intelligence. They're never part of the Royal Artillery, by the way. They never share those titles, but they work alongside them. So girls come in behind the guns. And the reason why, given just how traditional um, the two gendered roles were and how important that was seen to be for the maintenance of society as we then knew it, um, those girls could come in behind the guns. They could operate them like, think like the original drone girls, but they couldn't fire the guns. This was the big semantic trick performed brilliantly by Churchill in Parliament almost 80 years ago to the day, where he goes, yes, yes, girls are going to come in behind the guns, but we're not going to ask girls to fire the guns and therefore they'll still not be combatants. Oh, phew. Ironically, of course, girls on gun sites can still die. They just can't kill. 
Okay, so it's the ultimate, really, in a vulnerable equation, where you can't fire a gun. In Russia, the girls did fire the gun, the encroaching German army. They hated it, but it was pretty horrible. You know, can you imagine all those awful Luftwaffe overhead? Anyway, um, but the girls in Britain couldn't fire the guns, but they told the men when to fire the guns. So you still have a few dud men there in the gun pit, tended to be older men until that didn't really work with the younger girls bit of tension there anyway so um the girls are behind the predictor um they're behind the height finder and later when it comes in radar that's what martha did subaltern martha that was her speciality and this is equation of technology that is going to identify the um enemy radar and it's going to let the gun know when to fire and those are the roles the big sort of cutting edge roles it was a big big deal and of course in order to pass this through the, you know, the sort of tribunal of public opinion, as well as through parliament, uh, Churchill's daughter, Mary is sent off and very excited to be a gunner girl. You know, she's one of the first on the, the gun site in Richmond, which is one of our first mixed heavy anti-aircraft batteries operating a gun site. And, um, and, and so it went on from there, but this was big, big deal. It was kind of, and also the, it left a problem incidentally, it was a big problem also for the army, for the ATS, because, um, they rebrand themselves action through adventure great and uh the promise is you know in, in one of the films actually recruitment films the girl is dreaming of a great big gunny wanny but that means that no girl wants to cook or clean and so throughout the war you have a terrible shortage of cooks we may think so what but actually we have uh, one and a half million rising to two million men arriving in Britain or being trained in Britain, British colonial American, about to go into for the big D-Day push into Normandy. Well, who's feeding these brutes? You know, who's cleaning their kit? Who's doing the dog's body work? That's got to be done by the ATS. Might not be sexy, but somebody has to do it. And so we don't have enough cooks because all the girls want to be behind a great big gunny wanny. Anyway, there you go. But going back to Dorothy, Daphne's Dorothy, Dorothy was on one of these gun sites and she's on a height finder and actually Grace in my book, lovely Grace, um, who's still angry about, you know, the bad reputation of the ATS, she's on a height finder too. Um, but Dorothy, unlike Grace, doesn't live to tell the tale. Now you've got your tin hat, all the girls on the gun sites are given their tin hat, but the shrapnel falling down, one of the dangers is your own shrapnel falling back down to earth, doesn't hit an enemy raider, hits you instead. And she's killed stone dead, shrapnel through the forehead. And, and Daphne has this very keen memory of going to her funeral. She was given an impressive send off because it was a big deal, a girl dying on home soil. And a big fuss. She wasn't the first actually girl to die on a gun site. That was a few months earlier. Um, Nora Cavney, who um, was reported in the Times. And the interesting, the way it was reported was fascinating. It was about this, um, you know, this, uh, well, girl who is branded as rebranded as a hero really and what's interesting is not about the loss the feminine loss but about the fact that the gun site carried on functioning yes she died but then another girl took over the height finder and so you know proving that girls can defend the homeland as well as boys but we still have a very clear gender division throughout the war they're non-competents they're not officially gunners they're not gunner girls they call themselves gunner girls but they're not, they're never allowed those terms. They're not employed by the Royal Artillery, they're ATS, very separate. And quite a lot killed. I mean, nearly a thousand, isn't that right? That is, it's interesting. That's, it, it, the game of statistics is so fascinating and you see it now in our war against COVID compared to the way that we handled, you know, death tolls in the Second World War. We just didn't talk about death tolls in the Second World War. You know, it needs to keep the, 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 the war machine moving. So you don't flag up that people are dying unless you have to, you know, unless you need to celebrate heroism. That's, that, that's where it comes in, that, that recognition of death. 
So um, it wasn't banded about, hey, this number of girls have died this week. You know, that wasn't kind of what you did in censored Britain. But I think in total, the, the most accurate figure I got was about 770 girls died, not necessarily in action like Nora Kavni and Dorothy Lemon. But sometimes, you know, you go, Anne um, lost 17 of her friends. You get in a Dakota, you don't know if it's going to land. One of the great dangers, and this was for men too, especially overseas, is the transportation. It just isn't safe in the way it is today. It was all just a little bit experimental. Most people who are in an aeroplane were in an aeroplane for the first time in their lives. So, so, she, so 17 girls, ATS girls, fall, uh, are never seen again over the Mediterranean. Nobody to this day quite knows what happened to their plane. Anyway, 770 died. But what's interesting about that statistic is it seems like nothing if you think quarter of a million men die, which is why men are always going to come back after a war more emboldened and prioritised over women. Because while women advance... They don't advance like men do because men are on the front line and it's the men who are giving their life for king and country. But, but you're right, a significant number of girls do die, nearly about three quarters of a thousand, you could say 770 or so. Now, if you compare that statistic to the number of British service personnel, mainly men, but also women, who died in Afghanistan recently over a 10 year period, it's under 500. So more women, in just in the ATS, more women die than our entire 10-year war in Afghanistan, which informs you hugely, not only about how we view gender and, and, and the loss of, of gender and, and whether we talk about it, but actually more importantly, how we view and how much death we are prepared to take or talk about in a modern war compared to the Second World War. And the answer is we're not. We're, we're just... There isn't the political tolerance for returning body bags today as there was in the Second World War. It's a different atmosphere. We want our wars to be remote and we don't want our own personnel to die where at all possible. Understandably. But if you, you know, going to drones, drones still kill. It's just further away from home and it's less personal. But that's for a different podcast. It is. It is. We've run out of time. But don't worry, part two will be along soon. Now, if part one whetted your appetite, Tessa will be speaking with three of her veterans at the National Army Museum in London on the 10th of November, and there are still some tickets available. With her will be Betty Webb, MBE, age 98, Staff Sergeant, Daphne Atteridge, age 98, Searchlight Regiment, and Diana Lidston, age 97, and Lance Corporal. If you're in the south of England, Tessa is heading to Poole and the Lighthouse on the 14th of November, this time with gunner Grace Taylor, aged 97. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thank you and good night.